uh, happy Resurrection Day. It's good to see you all here. See all of you here today. Let's take our Bibles and uh, we'll turn to Matthew chapter twenty-seven. Matthew twenty-seven, and I would like to read verses forty-five. Forty-five through fifty-three. We'll begin now, Matthew chapter twenty-seven, beginning at verse forty-five. Now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is to say, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. May God add a special blessing reading of his word, and let us just pause for prayer prior to our study this afternoon. Father, thank you for this day, a day that we can gather and to commemorate and celebrate the greatest victory ever earned and gained forever. We thank you for the gift that Jesus Christ gave. We thank you, Father, that you designed it before you made anything else. For it says in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, you had chosen us in him. What a magnificent thought, a magnificent theme. Your love unfolded, not just telling us, but showing us. Father, now for these moments before us, we would ask that you would guide us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he exclusively would be our teacher. We thank you for those that have come out today and have are sharing their lives as we worship together, lifting up Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our Master. Thank you. Now, Father, may we be resonant in the words that you give to us through the Word. We lean on you, asking for you to share those with us, and that relationally we'll never have been closer than these moments today. Thank you now for what you'll accomplish. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, last week we, uh, which was actually, uh, a Sunday that is known as triumph, the triumphal entry or the Palm Sunday. It's the time when literally Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem And literally the rocks would have cried out, claiming he to be king. Have you ever heard any rocks cry out? (laughs) That's how powerful that that moment must have been. Because the chief priests and the Pharisees said, 
you know, just to be clear, Jesus, uh, you need to knock it off. I mean, you know these guys aren't right. Would you tell them to stop? And he said, no. He said, if they wouldn't, literally the rocks would cry out. And the theme that they said was, it seems so appropriate, Hosanna. That was a word we looked at last week. And it means save now. (laughs) Not just save, but save now. We want to be saved now from sin. No, that was the problem. They didn't see anything wrong with them. They saw something wrong with the Romans, and they wanted to be saved from the Romans now. And that was on a Sunday. And today, a week later, it's a glorious day, not because Jesus was lived as a king in the land of Israel. It's because he was crucified, buried, and rose again. To see the turn of the popular opinion is beyond belief. Literally, in five days, they went from coronating him as a king to crucifying him as a criminal. Uh, hard to get your head wrapped around that. I, I really don't know of a faster turn in history anywhere in any place, and yet it still fulfills Scripture. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, which we just completed that study in that book, speaks about the Messiah prince being cut off. Now think of that, and the oxymoron of that, the Messiah, the prince, being cut off to have given his life. There's a lot of things that took place in these days, and if, if we were going to be uh, slipping into the sandals of those Israelites, and we were in, Beth, I'm in uh, Jerusalem during this Passover week, because that was another high day. It was a festival. It was a time of great remembrance, because God had saved the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, very miraculously. And that's what they're gathered in Jerusalem for. And to think of, if you would just think back, (laughs) and if they would just remember things, right? It's the same for us. It's amazing how sometimes it would be good for us to remember what we should be remembering. Uh, John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus Christ, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That is a magnificent statement that literally should have just resonated with all of those that would have heard it because it was very messianic in the way it was described. Well, through this week, Jesus got started off on public relations in a very bad way. So if his presidential committee would have gathered around him, those cabinet members, if they were, if you want to make those the disciples, it almost was a nice number to be a cabinet, if you will. Um, First order of business Jesus did was went to the temple and started throwing people out. Not just people, but the leaders of the temple. Those that were extorting and maligning everything that the temple was about. They were overcharging. Now, by the way, this would have been a very high day in the sense of economies of the temple because there were those that would have been traveling out of town. Some would have brought their own lamb. Some of them was Monday was the day to select the lamb for your family for the Passover feast, which would be coming up. So Monday was that day. This was the day Jesus entered in and he threw the money changers out. That's a great way to get off on the right foot with the with the politics of religion. But that was the important part. See, Jesus cut through, always cut through the surface stuff. He wanted to get right at the heart of the matter, pun intended, because that's where always he was focusing was the heart of the matter. That event right there began to turn the entire table, should we say, against him. 
there was a whole lot of teaching that took place, and, and today uh, there's so much we could talk about, but I want to come down to the fact that we want to spend our time here in a, in a few moments about what did God have to say about the crucifixion? But the week that took place from him being a humble crowning to a horrible crucifixion in four short days. And there was a whole lot of teaching that took place. He talked about, he talked, he taught the disciples a whole lot of stuff that thankfully we have. We, we could, we could preach and we've taught on just those words that were given that were recorded over those four days. You could go on for years and years and years. It was so full and he wanted to give them everything he could before he left. I mean, it was jam-packed. It was full. And yet, public opinion, all of those that literally were on his side, by the end of the cruci- by, the, by, the, by his, the time of his betrayal, how many were with him? Zero. Which actually fulfills scripture. The disciples ran like scared rabbits. Uh, Peter, of course, at the Last Supper was pretty strong. He was pretty... Out there, he said, oh, no, not me. I'll be with you to the end. I'm the guy you can count on. And you know what happened. With literally a few hours, he had denied him not once, not twice, but three times. Unless we throw stones at Peter, it's easy for us to deny him as well. There's things that get between us. Uh, The one thing that I kind of an overarching theme today as well is looking at how diabolical that money and power are They literally are the two things that betrayed Jesus Christ. Satan literally to have entered into a disciple of his own because of his lust and desire for money. That's hard for us to imagine, but don't miss, uh, what should I say? Don't underestimate those two things. The religious leaders, they wanted him dead for one reason and one reason only. They did not want to relinquish the power that they had. Those two things literally control that world, and you know what? It controls the world today. Don't underestimate that in this last week of all of that, the conspiring that took place. Well, there was something that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you go to uh, Matthew, I believe, I didn't write it down, but go to Matthew chapter 3. This would be at his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. And God said something at the end of that. And we'll start it to get our context in John chapter 3, verse 14. It said, I'm sorry, verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and you coming to me? Jesus answered and said, Suffer it to be so now. And others, let it be, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all of righteousness. Then he suffered him, or he did it. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's how his ministry began. Literally, Jesus Christ is baptized. Uh, the Holy Ghost lands on Jesus, and he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's a great way to start. right? That's a great way to start a ministry. Three years later, 
We're focusing now on the very end of his life. The last three hours, the passage that we read today in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45, is literally the last three hours that Jesus Christ lived on this earth. What did he say? What did God think? And God, he didn't necessarily speak words, but he spoke loud. He spoke clearly. He allows us to see the importance of these last hours, which culminated and climaxed Jesus's life on earth. It's interesting as we go back to Matthew chapter 27, we'll again read verse 45, uh, Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And it's easy for us to just kind of pass over that. You've read that verse a number of times and probably doesn't mean nearly as much. Um, now, it's just a little bit, actually, depending on what clock you, I see we still haven't adjusted our clock to the new time here. So we have an extra hour today to, to talk to you. <laughs> I'm picking that up. It's not maybe welcome today. But at any rate, it says that it's a quarter to three, and it should say a quarter to four. But we would be literally right now, according to that clock, a quarter to three, we would be 15 minutes away from the death of Jesus Christ. We are approaching that hour, the ninth hour, which would have been from noon to three. Now, if you look outside, out the windows, uh, what does it appear to you? Forget the windy part. Okay. Bright, bright, sunny. Uh, let's read this again. Uh, let's put it into context. I'm going to read it differently so that it fits. And from 12 o'clock noon, there was darkness all over the land until 3 o'clock. That's a little different. In other words, literally, you would have had to have your car lights to arrive here. What's, what's going on here, right? There's been all kinds of different ideas about that, that maybe there was an eclipse. Or, no, that's all ruled out because the Passover would have never been during a time of where we could have had an eclipse. It, this is totally 100% supernatural, God-derived and created darkness. And it happened at noon. Now, how many of you have seen noon, Mountain Standard Time, that it's dark. No. Excuse me? Correct. And that's what's really interesting. When you know, we know the Passover is taking place, and that potential, potentiality of having that happen is zero. Zero. This is absolutely God overriding all of nature, everything he created, to provide darkness for three hours. Hmm. What is he saying? It's interesting what Jesus said. Uh, hold your place, we'll be ready, but we'll be coming back and forth to Matthew 27. But go to John for a moment. Uh, this is what Jesus said earlier in his ministry. John chapter 9. And actually, this was a miracle that he uh, provided this man with. In chapter 9 of John, in verse 1, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, and the night cometh 
when no man can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's what Jesus said. And yet within three hours of his death, it's dark, it's night, it's dark, very dark. Now, this isn't the beginning of the crucifixion. Uh, Going to Mark chapter 15, he tells us when the crucifixion took place. Mark chapter 15, and let's look at verse 25. You see, Jesus had already been on the cross for a period of time. There had been six. One of the other things, uh, as we'll just kind of give some of the details of the week, but something that had happened uh, began the night before his crucifixion was the beginning, late at night, of they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas Iscariot came and betrayed Jesus Christ with a kiss. And what began literally six trials that were all illegal, three religious trials, three I would call govern, government trials, Every one of those was illegal. And here we go at the very end of this, and Mark just capsulizes it by saying, whoops, I lost my place. Verse 25 of chapter 15, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. So if you do your math right, you would say the third hour is, since noon is the sixth hour, we would say the third hour is, three o'clock would be ninth hour, so six o'clock is noon, so the third hour would be, 9 a.m. So literally, Jesus Christ began on the cross being crucified, nailed to a cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. And those first three hours, there was three statements that Jesus gave, and we'll go through them very quickly. It's more or less what happened in those, the first time frame. Again, I can't express to you because I've never felt the pain and the the sense of deep, deep suffering that crucifixion would bring. I I literally can't describe it for you. And those that have tried have done it without literally being crucified. But just the very torturous events of that are overwhelming to us. You can't capture it. Even in that state, though, there were three things that he said. One we found in, in fact, uh, two of them are in Luke. Uh, Go to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we'll look at the first one. Now, what would you do if you were crucified, you were hanging on a cross? It's hard to comprehend that you could do anything, quite honestly. But I want you to see that the first thing that he says is given to us in Luke chapter 23. We'll read verse 33 first. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. He has two companions, if you will. Both of them worthy of being crucified. And then said Jesus, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Excuse me, that would not be what I would say. I would probably be on the tune, Father, come and get me and take it out on them. Because this is false accusement. I haven't done anything wrong. In fact, literally, you're talking about the Son of God, which is sin never can't sin, if you will, because he's so pure, so holy. And they have crucified him as a common criminal. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. What does that smack of? That is grace. His first statement was certainly full of grace. Keep going. I don't know why I turned back. Don't, don't do what I did. Don't go back to Matthew. So stay right there in Luke 23, and I'll catch up to you in just a second. Luke chapter 23, and we'll read the next verse. 
or I'm sorry, we, we've got to go a little further. Okay, so let's go to um, verse 42. Same chapter, Luke 23. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember, who's this? This is the, the thief that's hanging on the cross beside him. And he says, we, verse 41, we'll back up just a verse. If we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man, speaking of Jesus, hath done nothing wrong. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, or truly I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Wow. Another strong message of grace. Here's, you've got someone hanging beside you on either side that may deserve to be there. And one says, and of course they're talking, saying this one says, he would be thinking more like most people think. Uh, If you're really the Jesus, this would be a good time for you to exercise opportunities of strength. Let's leave together. If you're that big a guy, let's let's leave. Let's get get it done. And the other one uh, scounds him and says, stop it. This man hasn't done anything wrong. We're here because we deserve it. Remember me when you come into into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Whoa, that's an act of grace. He's on a cross, and he's exercising grace. Turn now to uh, chapter 19 of John. John chapter 19. We'll look at verses 26 and 27. The third and final statement that was given in the first three hours of his crucifixion. John chapter 19. We'll look at verses 26 and 27. When Jesus, therefore, in fact, we should back up another verse. I'm so good at not getting the right context for you. John 19, verse 25. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, I I have to stop there for just a second. I haven't any idea what it would be like to be Jesus being crucified on the the cross, nor would I be able to tell you what it would be like to be Jesus' mother at the crucifixion of her son. Now, I've told you this before, but oftentimes it's thought, and I remember as a youngster, a cross, I just depicted that as some massive, I mean, like 30, 40 foot high, and, you know, it's, that is not the deal. If you notice that one man normally would carry their own cross, and the cross member, or they carry the cross member, and the, the upright would already be in the hole, if it will. And they would, they would lay the victim down, nail his hands to the cross piece that he would have carried, and then they anchor it and put it into place and tie it. He literally, his feet, that person, would probably only be about this far off the ground. That puts a different light on it, doesn't it? He is right there, and you can't do anything about it. His mother and the other Marys are there taking this in. I can't describe for you what that must have been like. But here's Jesus. His third statement, he says this, verse 26. And unfortunately, I went back. I'm getting better at it. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by him whom he loved. Now, who's that? Who's who's the disciples described as whom he loved? John. John. He's, He's writing this down, and that's how he describes himself. Whom he loved, he said unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. Now, Joseph, uh, Jesus' stepfather, had passed away. He was no longer on the scene. 
And so now Jesus, being the oldest son, not that, think, think of this. I mean, I just can't, over, I can't express this loud enough. His three statements in his first three hours of being crucified, full of grace and mercy at every juncture. And there he is. He's crucified, can't do a thing about it. And he says, Mom, behold your son, John, your mother. But he was basically saying, John, would you please take care of my mother? Another act of grace. Then you'll find that the Gospels that speak of it at noon, which we've talked about, it goes dark. It goes dark. What does that mean? What does darkness, what does it refer to? Is there something significant? Is God saying something here? Excuse me? There is no light without Jesus. The other thing that's taking place now, why is Jesus on the cross? This is, this is very important. I, I, this is going to look like I'm trying to fool you, but I'll, I'll be careful not to try to do that. Okay? He is on, he's, he's for our sins. He did not get on the cross because he failed, because he was a martyr, because he was overpowered, because he wasn't strong enough to avoid the Romans or the chief priests or whatever you might say. He's there because he's chosen to be there. You see, that puts a whole different spin on it. I've heard so many people say, oh, you know, Jesus was a really good teacher, really good man, and he just, he just said too many things too loudly, and they finally got him. No, no, a thousand times no. No, no, he's there because he chose to do that for us. Let that soak in. Whoa. He's there because he chose to be. Now, he's on that cross, and the last three hours, something of significance is so powerful. I can't, again, describe for you what Jesus was feeling or was missing. I'm going to say it that way. Because when there's darkness, it's a sign of judgment. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. I'm not going to take too many, but let's see that God speaks clearly. Let's go to Isaiah. We'll go to the Old Testament. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 13. And this is describing, if you will, a time at the end. This has not happened. This is a picture of God dealing with sin. Uh, Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 9. We'll start in verse 8. They shall be afraid, and pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, so that they the land desolate. He shall destroy the sinners thereof of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth. The moon shall not cause her light to shine. Now, that's not speaking of this time. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. But what it is telling us, the time of judgment coming. And did you see the response? Darkness. Turn to the little minor prophet of Joel. See if you can find Joel. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. 
And he is doing a good job of hiding from me right now, Mr. Joel. Anybody find it? What page are you on? Why doesn't Joel appear to me? There it is. Okay. For those of you who are still looking, it is on page 1,309. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31 says this. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6 to just show that this is a theme that's throughout the scripture. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Again, noticing that darkness is a picture of judgment. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. What is God saying? God is judging. God is judging sin. And you know who's being judged? Jesus. Jesus Christ, for three hours, is being judged for our sin. How much sin did he have? Zero. Zero. The first thing that God says is that there's judgment that's required. Jesus is the one bearing that. Jesus is literally being punished by God for our sin. Let me say that one more time. Here's here's Jesus Christ who's walked the earth for 33 years. The last three years he's been teaching and preaching and speaking about God. He's been speaking about himself. He's been declaring all the things that are super important. And now he's hanging on a cross, being nailed there. And he is being punished for our sin by God. That's a big statement. That's loud. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 27 and let's find out that God says something else in the next verse. Verse 46 says, and about the ninth hour, that would be very close to three o'clock in the afternoon. It's been dark for three hours. Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, now he said that in Aramaic, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I, again, cannot tell you what that must have been like. For literally, God the Father to turn his back on God the Son to separate himself from Jesus Christ. To break fellowship with the very essence of who you are. Now, again, this isn't to lessen Jesus Christ's nature of God. It's not only the judgment of God, now it's the absence of God. This, my friends, is exactly what hell looks like. The absence of God. Full of judgment against sin. Sin must be judged. And what hell is like is, do you know that literally Jesus Christ understood hell for three hours? He knew exactly what it would be like. Because he lived it. On a cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It actually fulfilled scripture, which is, an, I'll not, you can write it down in your notes, Psalm 22, 1. 
that word that said, it says a loud voice. Again, uh, as you know now, he's literally just a few moments away from, from giving up the ghost. And most of the time, a crucifixion would end sometimes days after the beginning. Days. And here he is on his first day. And most of the time, because and they, a lot of time they would have a peg that the feet... You could, they could force up to, to get air. If you can think about it, all of, you know, you have no way, no capacity hanging there to be able to take in air. So every once in a while, they would push themselves up to get air. And if you can imagine, at the end of, the, of this turmoil of days, they literally are very weakened and almost asphyxiated because of that. That word, loud voice, literally means to scream. He said this with power. Again, he's fully and completely in charge. Of his, own, of, uh, of, of his own being, shall we say. Not only has God judged, he has separated. He's separated because of sin and guilt. He's bearing our sin. That fellowship which he's never known not to be his with God the Father has been broken. Then the third thing is, we've been talking about already, but his willingness to yield his life. Let's go to John chapter 19 for a moment. John chapter 19, we find the third thing that God speaks or commentates on, and it's in John chapter 19. I think it is. Yeah. Verse 30. Well, we'll we'll go into verse 28 because this follows exactly the sense of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. This is right close to the end of the third hour of the second part of the crucifixion. That the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. That's another passage that was fulfilled from Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar. They filled the sponge with vinegar, put it on upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Again, he died willingly. He willingly gave himself for the cause at hand. John chapter 10, verse 18. I want you to, even Jesus said this earlier. John chapter 10, verse 18. Watch this. This is very, very important. John 10, 18. No man taketh it from me. Let's go to verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This is the commandment that I have received of my father. Very clearly, Jesus willingly yielded his life to express divine love and sacrifice. Well, the next thing that God spoke of was the word satisfaction. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 27. God is going to say something else. In verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent or torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Now, at the very moment 
at 3 o'clock. Now, again, I want you to, meanwhile, back at the ranch, well, it's meanwhile back at the temple because this is the height of the day. This would be the Passover being celebrated. <laughs> there would have been a whole lot of people gathered into this temple, this one that on Monday Jesus threw the bums out. But there's one place in the temple that nobody ever got to go except the high priest one day out of every year. What was behind that? What was the one place no one had ever seen excepting the high priest one day out of a year? The Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. And to separate it, to make sure that no one got behind it, because I'll tell you what would happen. This is really, really important. This is what happened if you just said, I wonder what's behind here. <laughs> You're gone, buddy. Why? Because of sin. You say, well, that's pretty over the top. No, you're talking about when Solomon's temple and when God gave, actually even before that, when Moses was given directions to create this moving temple, if you will, it was just as separate then. And if that high priest went into the Holy of Holies without having sacrificed for his own sin, guess what happened to him? Gone. That's why I've told you this numerous times, but... The best way to handle that, because let's say that the high priest went in and he had not prepared himself adequately and had not sacrificed an animal to take away his sin before he entered into the Holy of Holies and approached the mercy seat so that the blood of a lamb could be put on that. Who's going to go get him? I'm not going to volunteer. <laughs> so there's two things that took place. One is he wore a bell. If the bell's jingling, he's moving. If he's moving, he's alive. That's good. That's is good. You hear the bell, things are good. The bell stops. Hmm. That's why he also had a rope. <laughs> and I'm, it's not funny, but I'm just saying that you'd pull him out. Nobody had ever been in there. And at 3 o'clock, the very same time that Jesus said, it is finished, that curtain, which was 30 foot high... 30 foot wide and four inches thick. In fact, Josephus talked of it that you couldn't put a horse on each side of it and pull it apart. That's how tough it was. And it didn't go from the bottom up. It went from the top down, which meaning it would be an act of God. And at 3 o'clock that afternoon when everybody would be gathered around for the Passover, getting ready to do their thing, right? And the Holy of Holy is open to see for anyone. What do you think happened in that place? You know what God was saying? He spoke very loudly here. That was the best way for him to say, I am now satisfied with what Jesus did for sin. He couldn't say that before. The sacrificial system that he had laid out through Moses was only nothing more than a shadow of things to come. You sacrificed animals and you sacrificed animals and you sacrificed animals. And it literally was just covering and atoning and taking place and taking time to till when? Till this day, this moment, these last three hours when God rained down on judgment on sin, separated himself from his very son. And then when he said it's finished, God said it truly is finished. I'm going to rip this baby apart and I'm going to show you what you could never get to. You no longer need a priesthood. No more priests after this. This moment right here. You do, write this down. No longer do you need a priest for you guys to get to the Holy of Holies and take care of your nation for a year. No, I finished it through Jesus Christ. And I'm satisfied. Isn't anybody going to say amen? Yeah, there we go. Tony was going to bring her out. He's satisfied with what Jesus did. 
I, again, cannot imagine what that must have been like to see full access through Jesus. Let's turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And let's look at verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's exactly what they're talking about. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his face, by his dying, if you will, and having a high priest over the house of God. That's exactly what he's speaking of there. God is satisfied, and he spoke it by ripping that veil in two. And the last statement that he makes is we find that in back in Matthew chapter 27. And during this event, it says that the earth did quake, verse 51, and the rocks rent or broke, and the graves were opened, and many of the saints which slept arose. In other words, they had died and came out of the graves when? This is important. After his resurrection. Why? What does it tell you about the resurrection? He is the first fruits. Jesus Christ was the first one to be resurrected. Now think of that. If that doesn't make a little seal, a stamp of approval, after Jesus Christ was resurrected, which we're commemorating today, there were literally those that were buried in the cemetery of Jerusalem that all of a sudden show up in town. Bill, is it you, Bill? Bill, been a long time, right? Now again, I don't know if it was actually just being resurrected so that they would die again, or if it was literally a new resurrection body. I don't know, but it was after Jesus, so all of those first fruits were completed. We're not told. But I'll just say this. If that didn't cause a stir in the town of Jerusalem, how would you like to have been a reporter on that week? Whoa. Grandma, right? I can't believe it. Give me a hug, right? You talk about change that town, that would have done it. Did, what, did, what was God saying? There's life in Jesus' death. Let's talk about, let's take the rest of our time, and I want to talk about probably the one thing, and we say it all of the time here, but the most important thing that you can believe and know to be true is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, you really aren't even saved. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's nothing to save you. That's super important. Now, let's go ahead, before we go any further along this vein, let's go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and Paul wrote this, and it's very interesting uh, what he's asking or telling us. Romans chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 8. He's talking about faith. Romans chapter 10, and we'll start verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh to thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. Watch what he says. This is the word of faith. This is the faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Now that word Lord combined with Jesus, the deity, Jesus Christ being all God. And shalt believe in thine heart that God, what? Hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. That's a key verse. That's one you need to have a handle on. Because if you don't trust that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, I'm not sure what you're trusting in. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he can't help you. (laughs) 
That's why Muhammad, I don't have a lot of faith in Muhammad to save me. He's dead. Hare Krishna. I could go on and on and on. The only one that's not lying and state is whom? Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I'm really glad about that. So how can that be proved? It's interesting, probably a lie more clearly defines and proves the resurrection than all of the genuine facts. And I've, I've, I've shared in the la- on the, over the last number of years things that really prove or show factually that the resurrection took place. But there's a lie that has, was projected from literally right in that time frame that I think probably even tells the truth more clearly. Sometimes the lies are like that, aren't they? Someone tells a lie and it's like, the very reason and the, how you said that just tells me that that is absolutely untrue. This is one of those. The lie that proves the resurrection. Let's go to, um, I've got to switch my notes here. One of the things, as we, before we go any further, let's just review a little bit. What we've just talked about, those five things that God spoke. The wrath of God against sin is equal to darkness. Darkness is the wrath of God against sin. The sense of separation from even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the holiness of God turning away from sinners. The love of God is expressed in the self-sacrificial death of God incarnate. The satisfaction of God is the holy of holies being thrown wide open. And the hope of eternal resurrection is the raising of those saints. As I've taken you to Romans chapter 10, verse 8 and 9, believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, uh, let me ask you this. If you were a disciple and you had just watched Jesus Christ be crucified and dead and you don't know yet that he's risen, what would be your perspective. I mean, do you know what's coming next? Uh, Again, now I I want to just blow you away because last Sunday, guess what? They were watching these people throwing down palm branches and Jesus is riding this donkey. And it's, I mean, it is fantastic. They're saying, save us and King, you know, King of David. And whoa, it was like, let's go have a pizza party. This is great. And a week later, he's dead. He's dead. Where are you? What are you thinking? Did Jesus talk about this? You probably, lots of, but you know what? They weren't listening. Have you ever listened? Have you ever had your mom or your dad talk to you a lot and you weren't listening? I think we were all good at that, weren't we? Now, I've noticed the kids in the front row did. No, I always hear what mom and dad are saying, right? But as old folks, yeah, you know what? My dad had a saying, and it wasn't necessarily just about him. It was uh, too soon old. Too late, smart. <laughs> well, let's, let's look at a couple of instances where Jesus talked about this very event. Let's first of all start in Matthew chapter 16. Math, we'll just deal with Matthew today in this regard. Matthew chapter 16, because it's interesting. The disciples didn't seem to get it, but someone else did. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 says this. Uh, from that time forth, are you all there? Matthew 16 and verse 21. Now, he had just asked... Who do you say that I am? In fact, that would probably be good. That would be good. Let's start in verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? 
They said, well, some say you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon answered, thou art the Christ. That would mean the Christos, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. That's just taken place. And then it says in verse 21, from that time forth, from that very time when he asked them who he was, he began Jesus to show unto his disciples to tell them how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Did you, that's not too hard, is it? That's not encrypt. That's not, you don't have to know numerology. That's kind of there. Turn over to chapter 17, verse 23. 17, verse 23. Verse 22 says, that he's, this is concerning his betrayal, which was upcoming. While they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Did you see it? They heard it. Couldn't process it. And then look in chapter 20 and verse 19. Chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 19. Verse 17, it starts, chapter 20. Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. They shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he will rise again. That seems relatively clear. But just so you know, do you know what the next verse says? Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, what do you want? And she said, grant me that these two sons may sit, one on your right hand and one on the left in thy kingdom. He's just told them I'm going to be crucified, dead, and I'm going to raise the third. Oh, Jesus, would you let my two boys sit on each side of you? Talk about miss it. Zoom. So did he tell them? Yes, he certainly did. Yes, he certainly did. And nothing is more important than believing in the resurrection. What was the lie? Well, first of all, think about who was very concerned about this situation, this problem. Who had Jesus Christ crucified? The Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas, all of those derived in this superpower, overarching umbrella of religiosity. They finally got what they wanted. He's dead, finally. Finally. Let's go back to our text in Matthew chapter 27, but let's read now after the burial, and we'll start in verse 62. Jesus has been laid in a tomb, a sepulcher. And it says in verse 62, the next day that followed the day of preparation. Now, this is actually on Saturday. This would be the Sabbath, if you will. They followed the day of this preparation, and the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate. Do you see? This, is, this really speaks weird to me, okay? Um, so you get this? The chief priests, the Sadducees, and all these kung fu heroes, they, they go to Pilate on the Sabbath. I'm like, What? What are they so worried about to talk to a Gentile on a, Saturday, on a, on a Sabbath? What, is it, what do they say? Oh, here it is. Watch. This, this is important. He's dead and buried. You shouldn't think he'd be celebrating. Well, here they go. Sir, verse 62, we remember what that deceiver, to be Jesus, said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Now, did you see they got it? 
They got it. They heard that. Verse 64, command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure or be secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people he is risen from the dead, so the last error will be way worse than the first. And Pilate responded by saying, you have a watch. Go your own way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure or secure, stealing the stone and setting a watch. Now, mark that very carefully. Jesus has been put in a sepulcher. He's in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And what was the other guy? I can't think of his name right now. Nicodemus, right? Remember Nicodemus? I love that story, right? Chapter 3 of John, he comes to Jesus at night. I, don't, I really don't think he wanted anybody else to know he was there because he was a religious leader and he's asking all these questions and Jesus laid out, unless you're born again, you can't ever see God. Here we go going through that life in less than three years. He's bold enough to step to the plate and say, I want Jesus' body and I want to put him over here and give him a decent burial. Well, that's stepping it up, isn't it? So, Pilate says, go ahead. Here's these guys. Here's these Roman soldiers. They know what they're doing. You take care of them. You take charge of them. You tell them what you want them to do. They're scared to death that if Jesus actually, even if he didn't raise from the dead, what, you see what they said? They had a plan. They already knew what the disciples were going to do, right? This is what they're going to do. They're going to steal his body. They're going to say he's resurrected. And then we are doomed forever. You know, you've heard of that thing. Sometimes a person will die. That's, and he, they make a martyr out of him. This would be the worst thing that could possibly happen. We've just crucified him. But if he literally was, like they say, he rose from the dead, we can't imagine the fallout from that. So they make it secure. They've got the, they've got the guard there. Everything's hunky-dory. There's a big fat stone rolled into place. They are in charge. Now, I'm not going to really take too much time and talk about all of the theories of why he wasn't there. We're just going to dive right into this one. Verse, tw- verse 1 of chapter 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, this is Sunday morning, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. They were going to finish the burial ritual. You know, they'd run into the, the weekend, if you will, you know, the, the, the sundown on, on Passover, and then you have the Sabbath. Now the next morning, there are, I mean, this is bright and early showing up at the tomb. We're going to take care of business. Watch verse 2. And behold, I like it when it says, and behold, it's a behold. There was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's a lot of vividness going on right there. They're walking along and crack, there's this earthquake, and down comes this heaven. He hits the earth, rolls this big, bold stone out of it, and he sits on it, and he says, Jesus isn't here. Whoa. <laughs> well, what do you think our guards are doing? Let's take a look. His countenance, is speaking of the angel, was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And this is, he's a fearsome-looking dude. Now watch verse 4. And for here of him, the keepers, the guards, did shake and became his dead men. How, how are they doing right now? They've watched this whole thing unfold. Earthquake, angel, roll the rock, sitting on the rock like lightning, Scared to death. And the angel answered, verse 5, and said to the women, Fear not you, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. What, what better place than to say, hey, by the way, he's not here, but don't come and look. 
No, come on in. Take a look. He's not here. He's not here. Now, what do you think those guys, those guards, after they finally became awake again, what do you think they did? I'm pretty sure they went into the to see if he was there, right? Because whose life is on the line right now? Theirs. Now, how many of you think would they would have felt pretty confident in their and pretty secure in their position? Look, we got a huge rock. Who are we going to be attacked by? By the disciples? Exactly the way they would have said it, right? What do they, they have? No money. They have no weapons. This is, and by the way, who else would want to steal the body? Let's talk about that for a second. We obviously know the religious leaders aren't going to want to steal the body because that makes the case terrible. Would the Romans want to steal the body? Of course not. What would it do to them? There's really only one group that it helps them actually state anything of any other case, and that is the disciples. So literally what they said is could be true. If the disciples stole the body and told a lie, it would be pretty overwhelming. But let's say, how in the world could they do that? Exactly. You guys answered the correct answer. There's no way. Makes no sense whatsoever. Okay. So let's charge down now into verse 11, same chapter. This is what takes place. You talk about have a problem. We've just went from being, I mean, on cloud nine. We've got rid of this loser. We've buried him. And now look what happens in verse 11. Now, when they were going, not speaking of the two women, they're taking off. Behold, some of the watch, those guards, came into the city and showed or told the chief priests all the things that were done. I don't know if you've ever known this before, but probably the first group of people to know that Jesus had risen from the dead were the religious leaders, not the disciples. The women were just going to find those guys. These guys on the guard take a beeline to go tell. Now, why did they go to them? Why didn't they go back to Pilate? Because they're Romans. <laughs> Plus, they're pretty happy because Pilate kind of blew them off and said, you know what? You religious leaders, why don't you take these guys? They're yours. You just do what you want to do. I'm so sick of this whole thing. I don't want to even talk about it. They're your people. So they go back and they report. What did they tell them? There was an earthquake. There was an angel. The rock got rolled away. He's sitting on it. He looks like lightning. And it's like, I cannot believe it. And the body's gone. Oh, my word. Can you imagine that place? What are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Just great. Verse 12. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. What is that called? bribery. If you thought Judas Iscariot was expensive, you probably had 12 to 15 of these guys because that's how they do it. They take turns. There's two or three taking a two or three hour shift and the, the night would have had four watches. You'll, that'll come in handy in just a second for you. So he, you got to pay them all off. You got to pay them all off. That's a large sum of money. They say a large sum of money. And then they say, but with this money, there's not only something we're going to do a couple of things for you. You need to say this. You say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. You need to speak this message. You need to propagate this lie. You put a spin on it. And if this come to the governor's ears, and he gets back to Pilate, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, that means in this day when Matthew wrote that, which was about 30 years later. So think of that now. That lie had been propagated from about 30 A.D. when Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, and rose again, to about 30 years later when Matthew wrote the book. 
And then even beyond that, the last apostle that died would have been John, and that was about 90 AD. So this thing really lasted at least for 60 years, this lie. It's a conspiracy. So what's wrong with it? Well, one of the problems that they have already is the fact that they can't deny things that had already taken place. Do you remember when Jesus rose, raised Lazarus from the dead? Well, you don't remember it, but you remember in the Bible where it says that. I can't, can't remember that, Larry. Well, in the Bible. Okay, let's, let's go there. Lazarus has risen from the dead. In fact, what did they want to do with him? They wanted to kill him because that was a huge thorn in their side because every time they see Lazarus, oh, that dirty Jesus rose him from the dead. What a jerk, Right? And I'm thinking, that's a sign for you people, right? If, if, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just tell you this. If I'm talking to Jesus and he's talking to me, and all of a sudden I watch him raise somebody from the dead, I'm going to listen closer. They wanted him dead worse. There's already miracles out there that literally give credence to the fact Jesus is who he says he is. And now we've got a missing body. Missing body. What are we going to do? Well, the one thing that they hadn't counted on was all of the appearances that Jesus made. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other women, to Peter, to the disciples who were walking down the road to Emmaus. There was 11 on a Sunday evening. They were locked up and fearful of the Jews. There was seven of them in Galilee. There was 500 at one time in Galilee to James, his half-brother. And there was 11 on the Mount of Olives. And then he spent 40 days with the disciples preparing for the day of Pentecost. They didn't see that one coming. Now, how many of the disciples believe that Jesus had risen from the dead right now? Now, let's step back. When the, when, the Jew, when, when the Jewish leaders already knew that there's a body gone, oh, my goodness. Oh, And you know what? It seems to me they really aren't convinced that the disciples took it, just the way they contrived the story. Two things that make this lie preposterous, but also make it extremely lightning to the sense that it makes the truth even more truthful. That's what sometimes lies do. One of them, did you catch it? This, okay, let, let me say, I'm going to play the guard. You're going to be the people. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to share something. It's just come across the hot wire. I was there. You will not believe it. You will not believe it. You saw Jesus Christ crucified. You saw him on a cross. We know he was buried. You know that. And there was a rock rolled in place. And I'm telling you, I'm tell- this is so crazy. I don't know how they did it. But those disciples came at night and they stole the body while we were all sleeping. It was crazy. And you should say, wait, wait, time out. What do you mean you were all sleeping? <laughs> and if you were sleeping, how did you know the disciples stole the body? Whoops and whoops. <laughs> Hmm. But even more importantly is the fact that as he appeared to other people. See, my question would be then if you're the group and you're listening and you're watching, I'm gonna, I wonder what the disciples are going to do now. If they really stole the body, they would still know that he's dead, which means he hadn't risen from the dead. So what does that do to them? Does that empower them really? I don't think so. On, especially if their life is in danger. If you know that Jesus Christ was just a fraud and somewhere you've stored away his body, you don't need to, you know, it just, it just look, well, yeah, he resur- he, he's resurrected. 
It's unbelievable. But you know he didn't? Sorry. You're not bold in the face of him. You don't tell Jesus' faith, and you don't tell about his resurrection unless you really truly believe that happened. Do you see why that lie actually makes the truth even more prominent? It's crazy. The disciples' lives really tell the story. Every single one of those disciples died a martyr's death, except for John. They couldn't even kill him. They say that he was literally tried to be boiled in oil, and they couldn't get it done. I don't know what that's about, but I do know that where he died was on the Isle of Patmos because they thought the safest place for this guy is by himself so that no one can get to him, and he's safe from humanity. is perfect because he wrote the book of Revelation. And we're still using it today. It's becoming more clear and more enlightened every single day. As we're moving through this pathway, we're in 2021. I've never seen Revelation look so bright. I've never seen Daniel be so clear and concise than it is today. That's going to get clearer. In the tribulation period, which is coming, it will never be clearer than those words that were penned because of that disciple that passed away in 90 AD that knew that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And that lie that they told and propagated literally proved the truth of the resurrection. What a day that was. What a powerful event. And that's why, honestly, let me put you in the perspective. Let's go back to a couple of situations of the disciples, what time, what frame they were in. Uh, You're in Matthew. Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 24. We're going to close up here. Luke chapter 24 and verse 11. Luke 24, 11. We'll start in verse 8. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher, verse 9, and told all of these things unto the eleven. This is the women and all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the disciples. Now, now mark, mark this carefully. Here come the women from the sepulcher, and they come running to the disciples. Oh, you won't believe it. You will not believe it. There was an earthquake, and there was an angel, and he rolled a rock, and he's sitting on He looks like lightning, and Jesus isn't there. He rose. How did I do? Okay, now let's see. What did the apostles say? And their words seemed to them as idle tales, fairy tales, and they believed them not. Wow. Let's go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Verse 19. This is the verse that actually... If you're here and you know Jesus Christ personally, if you believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, there really isn't anything that should cause you to be fearful. Now, verse 19, I want you to see the perspective therein. And verse 19, chapter 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, this is on that Sunday when Jesus had been risen, he'd appeared to the women. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews... Get that now. You guys are all disciples. There's only 12 of you in here. And this door, we've got the curtain pulled. We've got this baby locked. It's all shuttered. And we are locked down because the Jews are coming for us. They took Jesus. They killed him. They're going to come for us next. We are freaking out. And then all of a sudden, poof, there's Jesus in the building. And he says this, peace be unto you. Can you imagine? 
And if you have Jesus Christ and you've trusted him and you believe that he rose from the dead, you know what? It's just like that very thing. How many times do we have ourselves locked away for fear of something? This world has gone crazy in the last year. We're more fearful of things that I don't even... We're fearful of fear right now. There's nothing to be fearful of if Jesus Christ rules and reigns in your heart. And if he can, raise, if he can be raised from the dead and God was satisfied, you know that God judged Jesus and he separated himself for the very being of himself until it was finished because he willingly gave himself out of desire of love and everything that was needed for grace. That Jesus fully and completely can say to you, peace be unto you. And he can show up when you don't think anyone can show up. I love that. That verse is one of my favorite ones. It really is. If you've been in a situation that has you just cramped up and so bound up and you just don't know what to do next, guess what? Jesus can get there. Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we've had to take the scriptures that you so skillfully use men to pen words that literally come alive today. They're alive because you are alive. They're alive because Jesus is alive. They're alive because you rose Jesus from the dead. The word of God is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us. We, we can't even express our thanksgiving adequately. There's too much. It's too overwhelming to think of our Savior, particularly in this season, as he, in excruciating pain, for six hours, and three of them being absent from you, is indescribable. It's astonishing what was accomplished. In those three hours, more was done for this world than all of the rest of time combined. As that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, it's hard to imagine what those people must have thought. They probably thought they were instantaneously going to be dead. But Jesus had taken the sins of the world. As John the Baptist so aptly presented and said, verbally and outspokenly as Jesus came, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus Christ is. And he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's coming back again. And it would look like not too far into the future. He will rule as reigner, as a king and a ruler forever. That Jesus that died for us to take care of the initial sin problem will return to give us everlasting life. And anyone that has trusted Christ and believed that he has risen from the dead and confesses with his mouth, the scripture is clear to say that he or she is saved. And thank you, Father, for what you did. Thank you for what was accomplished. It's beyond us, beyond us outside of us because it was Christ alone that we accept by faith alone through grace alone. Father, thank you for what you did in Christ's name.